Hello and welcome and big welcome to my guest, Oliver Wakeman. Um, for, for, well, if you don't know Oliver, you'll certainly know his dad, Rick. And this is Nasmini Magazine podcast. And this is one of these interviews I've been really looking forward to because we're going to be talking about another legendary guy from um, the prog world who sadly passed away, which is John Wetton. Um, but I also want to talk to Oliver about your time with Gordon Giltrap um as as well and of course you've touched base with the straubs so all all kind of points mm-hmm. where your your dad rick has also been around and of course you've also got a brand new album coming out as well called anam cara is that the right way of pronouncing Anamkara, it? yeah 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 Anamkara, well. yeah okay well welcome oliver and thank you for for your time um today where i want to start with is and we both got one um it's the john wetton deluxe box set looking at his solo <laughs> career and this has been put together with a lot of love and affection and i watched a video where you talked about the autobiography of john at, in extraordinary yeah. life and how you talked about that and you you you, you obviously you, you feel a lot about john's music and him as a person and your you first met him i think was on the 2009 yes tour is that is that right around that time yeah it that's the first time I met him. The story actually goes back much, much earlier when I was in my early twenties, when John was doing one of his solo tours. Oh yeah. And somewhere down the line, somebody approached me and said, Oh, John might be looking for a keyboard player. Um, do you mind if I throw your name into the ring? And I was in my early twenties then. Wow. And nothing came from it, but I remember being really excited because I like a lot of people. I mean, I'm in my early fifties now. So I was, I sort of, the Asia records were sort of mid to late eighties. And I sort of discovered them a bit later, that sort of period in the, in the nineties where I sort of reached that age of being 18 and starting to really discover music. And I, and a friend of mine lent me the first Asia record and obviously John's name was on it. And I remembered having these, this conversation and I, I just remember loving that record and absolutely becoming a, a big Asia fan for that. And, um, so, so my memories of John actually go predate an awful lot of before actually meeting him. And uh, when I did actually finally get to meet him, I was uh, about 10 years later or so, 15 years later, maybe. And I was, I was doing the Yes tour. And we, we'd done, um, we'd done two or three tours with Yes with myself and Benoit. And then we ended up going over to I'm trying to remember where we started. We started over, it was somewhere very hot. I remember that. <laughs> it's America. It's very, very hot. And we were doing a tour with Asia. It was Yes and Asia, and Steve Howe was playing both both um, sets. And I remember, I can distinctly remember turning up at the hotel, and I'd just flown from London, so I was exhausted. Somebody had missed the taxi to get us to the uh, to the hotel, so we were all a bit stroppy. And I remember walking through the hotel, and they said to me, your room's over the other side past the swimming pool. And I can just remember walking past the swimming pool and there was John in an inflatable armchair floating <laughs> in the middle of the swimming pool. <laughs> I just sort of remember what a great first meeting. And um, and while we were on that tour, we just spent a lot of time chatting and getting to know each other because obviously I, I, I was, I mean, you can't get better. I was spending my life on the road with people that I'd admired for years, you know, and and so hanging out with Chris, Steve and Alan was, was great enough. And then suddenly to be on a tour and John Wetton was there as well. And he was an early riser like I was. And uh, 
we didn't sort of go out in the evening. So we'd often gravitate towards each other and just spend hours just chatting and sitting down for breakfast and chatting. And it was it was great. I, I got to know him really well. Uh, so that was when I first first met him, and and we spent a lot of time together on that tour. It was it was great fun. You said that he gave you um, valuable career advice, and you talked a lot about music and history and stuff. What kind of can you remember some of the things that he kind of said <clears> to you that kind <throat> of have continued yeah, to resonate? Yeah, I, I had a I have a couple of couple of things. One some advice that he actually gave me, and some advice that I've sort of imparted from the way he he writes songs. I mean, one of the things about this this solo thing is I, I I knew some of John's solo work. I didn't know all of it, which is why this box set was so amazing. Um, and I remember sort of when I was learning to write songs, I always remember listening to to John in the Asia in the Asia music and thinking to myself, mm-hmm. how does he do it? It's I was so used to growing up in the eighties and the nineties where it was that traditional don't bore us get us to the chorus sort of approach to music yeah and john seemed to do this stuff where he would just write verses that were so melodic and so wonderful that once the chorus finished you look forward to getting back to the verse to hear how he would do it again Mm. and he just had this ability and it's one thing i noticed in the box set going through some of the music i mean i knew some of it and some of it i didn't it was just he never writes anything duff it's really annoying he just just always manages to come up with a great melody and something that just makes you it's like ear candy and so i always had that when i was learning to write songs and and writing songs i i have a little yardstick where i where i'm writing a piece of music and i will think is that verse good enough is it and it's in it it's because of john that i do that is because of that feeling of actually having to get everything right. And on the, the new album, which we'll, we'll talk about later, there was one song which I started writing for the whole album. And I had a vocal line all the way through it. And I was you know, happy with it. And the instrumentation built up. And I got to the final recording. And I had everybody recording all their parts. And I listened to the final mix of the record. And I thought, that verse isn't good enough. Those verses aren't good enough. And I remember thinking to myself, John wouldn't be happy. <laughs> and so I, I stopped and I, I rewrote the verses and I phoned up my singer and I said, I'm sorry, I need to get you to do it all again. And she said, what? It was, it was, it was great. I said, no, 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 it was not good enough. So I actually ended up having to go over to the record company and say, excuse me, do you mind if I just, you know, do a bit more studio time? Cause I've got to do this again. Yeah. And that is sort of one of the lessons that he never taught me, but I took from the way he works and the other stuff that he was always very, um, strong on was was my identity he said you've got to you've got to agree with your identity believe in your identity what you're trying to do in music because you are you know playing with yes and stuff you're going to be seen by a lot more people a lot more people are going to be like, he said you can fall into a trap of just doing what people expect you to do he said you've got to do what you believe is the right thing to do and what you want to write which is which i've, I've stuck stuck to because I, I think anybody that knows my work will realize that one album often can be different to the next album because I get excited by music and working with different people. And I think that that's similar to his solo albums. You know, he worked with, I mean, that's another thing about the box set that I was amazed about was just the amount of different people that he worked with. You know, a lot of people that know John from his Asia years will always think of him and Jeff as a, as a writing partnership and, and them working together and he's sort of a songwriting partnership and that's you know that's how I felt about John for a long time. Oh, John and John and Jeff, they they write all the time. But hearing how good he was at writing with all these other people, 
was was astounding. And it was just great. You know, there's so many good tracks on here that I just sort of, you know, when a track's good, you sit there and your foot starts going before you realize it. It was it was that sort of stuff I was getting from the box set. I I I mean, because obviously for the for the marketing perspective, they've got to say, keep mentioning the word progressive rock and that's you know, the King Crimson and Asian stuff. But really when you when you go through this box set, you realize what a fantastic songwriter he was. And it, it isn't yeah. when people think of prog then they think of all this almost like mathematical time changes and dense music but it this is not this is not that he's as you say his voice is like velvet um and there's the welcome to heaven and rock of faith were the my favorites on within this box set i mean they're all beautiful yeah and in fact by the time i I listened to it i listened to more back to back and once i got to the end of Rock of Faith. It, I felt quite emotional about it because realizing he's not here anymore, and 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 the the, the absolute quality of the songwriting. And then, as you say, mm. you look at the extra tracks in his work: the Juria Moroder and David Cassidy, and there's just all sorts of names you wouldn't necessarily associate with him. But everything just yeah. sounds like him. Oh yeah, it's it's remarkable. I mean, I'm going to pick up on a couple of things. Is because I've been, like you, I've been going through the record and listening to it. And Rock of Faith, I, I knew. I didn't actually um, know the record before because it, I, obviously I worked a lot with Clive Nolan and Carl Groom mixes all of my records and they are both the producers on the the Rock of Faith record and they did all that recording in Thin Ice which is where I have practically recorded nearly all of my records and so I know the quality of the work that that Clive and uh, and Carl do uh, and and that's a that's a stunning record um, but the I think it was on Battle Lines. Um, uh, I think it's the track Love. Actually, I'll phrase it a different way. On the box set, there's some bonus tracks on each disc rather yes. than the rarities discs. Yes, that's right. And what amazes me is the bonus tracks are phenomenal. Yeah. There's a bonus track called Love Is, which I just listened to, and it's like, how can this be a bonus track? And then there's the track Cold Comfort. When I was listening to yeah. Rock of Faith, it's like, what a great track. What a great track to end the album. And then when I look through the sleeve notes, and it's like the bonus track, and you go, oh, come on, John, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah the, i mean the, the music's beautiful isn't it um i'm just thinking of the, the celtic cross and the circle of saint giles um off um off off um archangel it's kind of got a kind of a celtic kind of dimension to it which of course on, on your latest album there's a yeah celtic dimension as well um but yeah as you say he was just he, that songs as you say the the verses the the choruses they're all beautiful beautifully arranged yeah he, he was he, i mean i'm i'm not the world's i, I on my twitter handle I, I put myself down as a, a keyboardist and piano player songwriter occasional guitarist and even more occasional singer because <laughs> i've been blessed with the ability to sing um like my dad who is also renowned for not having the greatest of singing voices uh, and i get so jealous of somebody like john that can just sing like I think you described it brilliantly, has a velvet voice. It is just he he doesn't have to power it out. He doesn't have to scream and shout. He just has an ability to command attention with his voice, and it's just yeah, yeah. It's kind of as you say. Well, I, I kind of describe it. Feels like it seems like velvet because there's slight into there's slight variations in how he how the words come out, but they have such a dramatic yeah. effect on you as the listener. Whereas some vocalists yeah. will have to really 
go all up and down the the mounting pass to to get the emotions there. But he does it very very slight nuances, and you know that the the emotion in the song has changed. Yeah, I, it's it's lovely, and I'm I'm getting so much. And to be honest, I'm I'm loving listening to the boxer, and it's so, I mean, it's so beautifully done. You can tell everything you read in you know, the book. I, on the on the box set but the book that comes with the the box set is just amazing and all, all the comments that you read from all the musicians that worked with him everybody says pretty much the same thing just how great he was to work with what a gentle nice character he was and i only knew john in his later sort of last 15 probably years of his life and yeah he was he was a lovely a lovely chap i i got that you know everything i read about him is exactly what i knew from John that I met. See, because you had a chance to perf- um, perform with him, didn't you? When to doing <clears throat> Heat at the moment was that with um, Gordon Giltrap, was it? That that was that was um that was a bit of a bucket list moment for me because the, going through these solo albums, I sort of feel you know it's like oh, it's one thing I would love to have done is recorded with John because a he just made every song great, and I would like to have liked to have worked with him because it just would have been great. So. Well, I worked with Gordon Gill when I when I finished with Yes, which was about 2011. I think it's 2011. I finished with Yes, the, the end of 2011, and I then went on to work with with Gordon Giltrap, and we wrote a record called Ravens and Lullabies, and we went out and toured that as a duo. It was half the album was rock songs, half the album was duets in it. These those were the Ravens and the and the Lullabies, and so when we went out as a duo, we could only really do the Lullabies portion of the record. So we did the sort of gentler music. And then after a couple of years of touring this, and we've got so many requests to put a band together. Uh, we, in fact, we, we got asked to do a headline at a festival. So we did this headline show and everybody went, that was great. Could you do a tour? So we agreed to do a short tour. And um, John and John and I were in touch and I said to him, oh, I'm, I'm going to be down your, your way. I think it was playing in um, Mr. Kipps, I think it was, down in Poole. I said, I'm not going to be far from you. If you're around, if you'd like to come to the show, it'd be lovely to catch up and have a coffee. And if you can't make the show, we'll we'll meet up in the afternoon after soundcheck. And he said, no, great. And he said, no problem. I'd love to come. And he jokingly said, he said, I'll sing if you want. <laughs> and it was like, you're, you're not going to get away with asking me twice. So yeah. it was like, brilliant. I said, love to. What, what do you want to do? And he said, heat at the moment. And I went back and told the band that you know, we had a gig that night. And then we were, I think we were playing two nights later in, in, and I said to the rest of the band, I said, we've got a sound check and we've got to learn heat at the moment and we've got to get it right. We've got to make it really, really accurate because John's going to get up and sing with us and we're going to have a chance to do one rehearsal with him, you know, just to play through it a couple of times. And the rest of the band were like, we're going to play heat at the moment. Brilliant. You know, and it was, it was lovely. And I have a load of photographs from that afternoon of him, him there with us all you know playing in the background and rehearsing together and uh, even somebody even did a video of it i think and i've put oh, wow. it up on my youtube channel where it's it's terrible sound recording and you know we're all a bit precious about our quality of videos nowadays where everything could be so perfect on a phone but this was like 10 years ago where it was a lot you know there was a lot less of the ability to get such great quality and i sort of thought oh, i'm going to put it up because it's it's one of those moments that i was so pleased to have done and um and then we sort of kept in in touch after that. I was sort of um I just found an email earlier on, oddly enough, of just writing to him and saying how how great it was to catch up with him. And he said, Yeah, let's take care, we must keep in touch again. And then of course it's only a few more years later that he suddenly got very ill and um 
yeah, it was very sad when he when he when he passed away. So one of my regrets is never actually being on a record with him. Mm. But I have the sort of the plus side of actually having performed live with him and actually even though we didn't share a stage together, we did tour together. So we spent a lot of time together. Uh, and there was a thing that we were on the end of the last Yes tour that we did with Asia. We were actually going to um, all play together. Oh, yeah. And I, I can distinctly remember Jeff Downs and myself behind my keyboard rig sharing out parts for Roundabout that we were going to do at the end. And John was going to come out and sing it with Benoit. And it was going to be a wonderful thing. And it just did. I can't remember why it didn't happen. I think it was transport things or something like that and getting to airports and all the, all the nonsense bureaucratic stuff that gets in the way of musicians having fun but it was something i was so looking forward to and it just didn't happen so when i got to do it with gordon that was a a big box ticked yeah uh, you you contributed to the to the book an extraordinary life uh are there any particular stories that you when you when you put your contribution, uh, this one has got. There, to there's some bits that, yeah, bits and bits, bits. That I, some of the stuff I've just talked about, we I, yeah. I put in the book, but I, I obviously the the Gill Trap concert was a was a big big bit yeah, for of me. Um, but he was also when I when I uh, stopped working with Yes, that was a that was quite a difficult time for me when I was um when that changed because that was around when Trevor Horn came in and wanted to write the album with Jeff, and so that's when Jeffrey joined the band because Trevor wanted it to work that way for the way he wanted to write the music. Um, which was why I was so pleased to get the From a Page record out that we did uh, a few years later or a few years ago to actually show the work that the band worked on with Benoit and myself. But when we when we did the when that happened, I then had to do one more tour before the record came out. So I went on tour with with Yes, um, knowing that Jeff was coming in on the following tour, uh, and then I got a, a phone call from um, the management who said, we've got two extra shows in Mexico, you know, technically, you know, you're going to be finished, but would you like to do the last two shows in Mexico? And I said, yeah, okay, I'd love to. And he said, oh, we're playing with Asia. Asia are coming out on that tour. So Jeff will be on that tour as well. So I was sort of thinking, well, that's going to be slightly awkward for me and slightly awkward for Jeff. Hmm. Um, but I thought, oh, well, you know, what the hell? I'm going out to Mexico. I'm going to play music. It's, it'll be fun. And I remember distinctly getting into Mexico and John taking me to one side and just saying to me, I feel for you. You know, he actually, bearing in mind, he works with Jeff all the time and he's there and he's part of the management and he's part of all that, that thing. And he actually made a point of actually coming over to me and, and said to me, how are you doing? Are you okay? Is, is, you want to talk, come and talk to me, you know, and that's something I didn't put in the book, but that is something that has stuck with me. I don't think I've ever mentioned that before but it just seemed the right, you know, it seems like a right story to tell because it shows the measure of the man that, you know, regardless of all his things that he had to deal with and the, and the people that he worked with closely, he still had time to check to make sure I was all right, which I was immensely grateful for. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because as we know, in busy moments like that, he's got, especially as a musician, you're going on stage, you've got all the, your mind's full of like so much stuff. To actually also yeah. be thinking about other people who aren't even in your yeah. group of musicians you're about to play with, yeah, it's yeah. that says. And a lot. obviously, and because Jeff is his songwriting partner, you know, you, you could have you could have excused him if he'd had that sort of mindset that, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to think about Jeff. Jeff's my writing partner, therefore I mustn't rock that boat. But he made a point of coming to me, and I thought that always struck me really, really strongly, and that, that has actually stayed with me. 
all this time. Just to go off just slightly for something you said about John earlier about him taking some of the advice you took on board was the fact of of being yourself and finding your own voice yeah. in music. When you were with Yes, because this is an interesting thing. Obviously, you were taking over from you from your dad, Rick. Yeah. And I just think the dynamic of fathers and sons or or family members, you were playing and, and pl- plus playing classic almost like classic literature, these songs embedded in people's memories who've grown up with them. They were probably, you know, in their 60s or 70s. They know every note from those albums. Yeah. You were obviously must have been sticking very close to the to the template of what the songs were. What was, from what your perspective, from that family dynamic, of you were thinking that when your dad had written that music or played those solos, you were in, you were in those notes and, and doing it, did it give you a different perspective on on how your dad had composed or com- put those parts um, together? Yeah, it was really interesting going through it because I, I mean, it was a, it was an interesting time because I got asked to do the band when John was in the band, and then John became ill, and then it all got cancelled. So I, my main point of contact had been with John. I think it was going to be called the. Uh, close to the edge and back tour which was the tour that preceded the in the present tour and john and i were talking about all this stuff recording a new album and we talked about um songs to do on stage and we were going to talk about doing a piano and vocal version of holy lamb because i always loved that yes track mm-hmm. uh, and we were going through all this sort of stuff and then of course john got ill and then it sort of fell apart and then i ended up getting um a call from steve howe yeah, a few months later saying that they were still going to go out. Did I still want to be involved? And I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then they said, okay. Um, I said, well, can I have a set list? And they said, oh, we haven't worked it out yet. And I think they gave me the set list three weeks before we were due on stage. Right. And it was like, okay. And I said, how long's the set? They said, oh, about three and a half hours. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I got three and a half hours worth of yes music. And, um, there were no notes. There was nothing anybody had written down. They just sent me a box of CDs and it was literally just sat there listening, trying to work it all out. And I turned up and then we had a week's rehearsal and it was traditional. Yes. All the yes stories you hear are true, which is like, we'd supposed to start at nine. Chris would turn up at one and then, you know, we do Tuesday to rehearsal and Chris would say, I think we need a day off. <laughs> and I, I just would I would just keep working. I'd just get up early, sit at the keyboard, or try and cram all this stuff into my brain. Uh and um so I really got a, a a really intense view of all the parts and of how people had written them because I was having to analyze it so so deeply. Um what made it also slightly complicated was um I think I had a distinct idea of what I wanted to do with the music which was try and get it back to the original records as much as I could. Whereas over the years, when I'd listened to some of the live versions, dad had altered his parts, changed his parts, used different sounds, added extra little runs in and things in to keep himself occupied. And and in the nicer sense, he'd earned the right to do that because it was his music that he wrote. He was part of the band, the classic thing. I didn't have that. I couldn't come in and just go, oh, well, I'll noodle something here and I'll make something up there. It was like, no, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. The thing that I can bring to the band is maybe some authenticity back to how the records were originally played. So I turned up having learnt all these original parts and then 
Chris and Steve would turn around and say, oh, we don't do it like that anymore. We we have a different arrangement for live. And it was like, okay, so they give me the live albums to listen to. And there's dad playing all these extra bits over it. And it's like, okay, so I've got to try and remember and try and arrange all the original parts for how the new arrangement is, but without all the twiddly made up bits as well. So that was quite a challenge. Um, but it was, it was great. It was, it was so challenging. Chris even came up to me one time. I think we were doing Siberian Katru and he said, um, can you do that string bit that comes in the middle section? I said, what bit? And he goes, it comes in about, and he made a certain point. He says a little string part. And I sort of said, okay, well, let's listen to it, Chris. You tell me where it is. And he played it. I said, I can't hear anything, Chris. He said, no, listen again. And I listened, I listened. I said, I can't hear anything. I said, Benoit, can you, can you hear anything here? And Benoit went, no. And Chris is renowned for, for having a, well, was renowned for having a wonderful memory. He just yeah. phenomenal memory. And he said, we did it in this studio. It can't have made it to the record, but I can remember what it was. And he would start singing to me what he wanted. <laughs> and so I'd have to start working these parts out that didn't exist. That only he could remember. Wow. And he said, and he would go, and if you could throw that in for tomorrow night, that'd be great. That'd be great. Like, yeah, all right. Not a problem. <laughs> Not a problem, Chris. I'll, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> so was it so when you so went was, from uh, when you when you found yourself then with Gordon Giltrap, who was a totally different musician, a, a brilliant guitarist. Yeah. Um and, and one actually I, I know I actually personally know uh, Gordon quite well. When I I'm, I live in Cornwall now. But we used to live in Birmingham, and my wife played on one of Gordon's uh, albums called uh, for the "Music for the Small Screen," and uh, and oh, he right, comes yeah. down to Cornwall every so often, and uh, we we have a chat to him. So seeing that you played with him, and you pl- and obviously um, you know John was also involved singing "Heat of the Moment," but he's, musically he'd been moving more into kind of like solo guitar virtuoso quite folky stuff so you come from yes where you're having to do all this complicated stuff and now it's just you and another musician was that a yeah a kind of a different dynamic and a, a, a you know a, not an easier one but a more expansive one for you to stretch out and do what you like as well it it was um i mean the thing that we we both decided when we got together what actually happened was Gordon phoned me up and he said, I'm, he said, I'm doing a solo record. Would you play on a track? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Cause Gordon and I had met at a Christmas show. Dad used to do these Christmas shows and one Christmas show I was playing and he'd invited Gordon to, to play as well. And Gordon and I just hit it off and we got chatting and, and it was great. And I gave him my number and he gave me his number. And then, you know, as people do, they just go great. And they put it in their address book and, sometimes you meet up sometimes you don't yeah yeah uh, and but he, he had my number and he said i want to keep a play and he said oh, i'll give oliver a call and so he phoned me i said would you do it and i said yeah and he said i put the phone down and he said night he said he phoned me up the next day and he said i don't want you to play on the, on the record and i sort of thought great so i've been sacked by gordon before i've even started with him <laughs> and he said no i want you to do i want us to do a record together he said, I don't just want to do another record because he, he'd done an awful lot of acoustic records, which were all yes. beautiful. Mm. Um, and he'd worked with with different musicians, but he hadn't done a full-on band record since his his heyday back yes, in the yeah. Peacock party days and, and things like that. Um, and I said to him, but Gordon, if we just do a full-on rock record, we're going to end up alienating the people that love what you do with your delicate acoustic stuff. And he said, yeah, but if we just do all acoustic, 
people are just going to think it's an album like the one I did with your dad, where it's just me and him playing an acoustic guitar and a piano. Yeah, from Brush and Stone, said, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I said to him, I said, well, one of the things that we were doing with Yes before Trevor Horn came on board was we were going to try and not recreate Fragile, but we were going to take the template, which was band songs. And then we would each have an individual piece that we'd written, maybe with somebody else would play on it or we would do it. So we actually interdispersed the the the, the new Yes record with these bigger pieces, which ended up all over, you know, it was Into the Storm, Gift of Love to the Moment and, and things like that. In between, we would do little solo spots as well. So sort of trying to use the te- the fragile template to show that it was a new start with Yes, because, of course, John wasn't in the band and Dad wasn't in the band. And it was Chris, Steve and Alan trying to to restart the, 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 the Yes machine, as it were. And so Steve and I talked about this a lot as an idea. And then, of course, when Trevor Horn came on board and wanted it to be the fly, flying, we can fly uh, yeah. story, when I spoke to Gordon, I said, well, look, this is what we were talking about. How about we take that idea, instead of it being solo pieces, we make it duets, and then we do the band pieces as well. That way we we don't alienate people that like what we do individually, but we also get to show another side of ourselves to our respective audiences. And he said, that's that's a great idea. And then um, I think I just came up with the idea of ravens and lullabies I'd, I'd seen an artist who'd done a picture of some ravens circling around a small child and i remember thinking she's sort of like trying to cover her head and trying to th- sing herself gentle lullabies to keep herself calm and all these ravens were flying around her head and i said to gordon i love this imagery of this sort of hectic chaotic raven attacking your mind and then inside you're trying to keep yourself gentle and i said wouldn't it be great if we did rock songs that were the ravens and the lullabies were the gentle pieces that cleanse you between the hardships you have in life. So we can write songs Hmm. that pick up problems throughout life that, you know, or or autobiographical things. And in between, we just cleanse the palate with what we both love doing, which is going back to our acoustic instruments. And, um, and yeah, he thought it was a great idea. And it also gave us the opportunity then of going out and touring just as a duo um, and then later on being able to do a full band. So it gave us a lot to work with. So it was, um, and he was, a, he was great to work with Gordon. And he was just, he was just great. We had such a great time on tour. We speak to each other all the time. Um, I did a concert at the beginning of the year uh, for a, a couple of schools, one, one special school. We did some, raise, raise some money. Yeah. Uh, and my dad and I talked about doing a concert for years and we, uh, we're organizing the show and, and dad says, anybody else you can think of that w- could play? And I, I phoned up Gordon and it wasn't long after his mum, people may know he he lost his wife at the beginning yeah. of the year. And it wasn't long after his, his wife had passed. And I'd spoke, spoken to him a few times to see how he was. And I was telling him about this concert and I know who's close with Carrie Martin. So I said, do you think Carrie would sing? And he said, I'm sure she would. And he just said, would you like me to come and play? And I said, Gordon, I wouldn't ask you to come and, do your first concert after Hillary's mm. passing and expect you to come along and entertain people. And he said, if you want me to come, I would love to do it. And that, that just sums up Gordon brilliantly. You know, he just loves playing, loves the idea of entertaining people and wanted to do something to help. Uh, and and that's what I, I loved about working with Gordon. That was his, that was his mindset. In fact, you know, he even, when we were touring together, I said to him one day, I said, do you want to come and play at my kid's school? My son, Arthur, who is now taller than me and 18 and doing, you know, growing up far too quickly. When he was 
about eight when he was in primary school. I said to Gordon, would you come to the school with me and play to the children? And he was like, yeah, not a problem. And there was the two of us sat there, a grand piano, him and his acoustic guitar with about 158-year-olds clapping out of time whilst he was trying to play heart song. It was hysterical. <laughs> he was just he was just so happy to do it. And that that's that's Gordon, you know, love another lovely chap. Has has Gordon's music has it in any way influenced your your new album at all in the um you know in a in a way, yes. I because I, I did um the album with Gordon and he did such wonderful acoustic guitar playing. It made me when I did this album. I was thinking basically the new album is a sort of rock Celtic type record. So I wanted to develop and work with other, other musicians. Um, so there's, there's violinists on it. I've got Troy Dunockley doing Ilian pipes on it. I've got saxophones, clarinets, I've got all these other il- instruments to bring in other, other flavors of music, um, which is something I really wanted to do until I realized halfway through the record that I'd removed about 40% of the keyboard parts <laughs> with other people's instruments i was suddenly going actually i've nearly nearly deleted myself off the record but then again i you know everybody on the record was so good i was beginning to feel a bit like the weak link anyway um but the one thing that i i discovered from working with gordon was just the intricacies and a bit, bit from steve howe as well the obviously the intricacies that the guitar can have um and so but I couldn't get Gordon to do the record because obviously we have, it was a solo record for me and it wouldn't have made sense that we'd done a, a duo record together. And then suddenly he's playing guitar on yes, my records, not, not as a guest. So I got in touch with um, Oliver Day, who is a, a fantastic acoustic guitar player and asked him to do all the acoustic guitars on it. And he can play lap steel, lute, mandolin. So he has the, the whole um, suite of stringed instruments that Gordon and, and Steve have. And it, it, it just made me working with Gordon made me realize that I wanted those textures on the next record. I couldn't just, um, I, cu- I couldn't just have guitars strumming a little bit and, and loads of keyboards, you know, and there's, there's whole swathes of the record where I'm, I'm barely audible <laughs> because everybody else sounds so wonderful. Sorry. So carry on. I was just going to say that that's one of the things that John did, you know, do what you want to do. And it was like, well, people keep saying to me, you're going to just do an all out keyboard record, lots of keyboard solos and stuff like, yeah, I'll do that next. I want some other things I want to do first. What was it about the kind of the Celtic essence that drew you to that? Uh, Because I think the Anamkara translates as soul friend in Gaelic, I think, if I've got that right. It is. Yeah. It it came originally from a project I was doing 20 years ago with a, a young singer um called rachel who was a a welsh singer and she just sang beautiful um lilting uh folk songs and she was a harpist so the project originally started off at that and i think it was her husband turned around and said to me oh if you do a project together you should call it alam Carr." and i said well what's that and he said well it's celtic for soul friend and and you know you musicians you're all like soul friends together because you don't know anything about each other when you first meet uh and you just create music together and he said it's it's like you know it's like the souls have, have, have been friends for years even though you physically have never met each other and i thought well, that's a great idea the project never really got going it we did a couple of demos i think and then it sort of fell apart and then i ended up doing some rock albums and then i went off to join yes and my management w- was saying to me what what do you want to do next and i kept thinking to myself i want to do that celtic rock record again because i love bands like um, obviously, I love all the Riverdance stuff. I love 
the clan ad, all that, yeah. that, that sort of, it had a, a hauntingness to it. But I sort of thought it would be really interesting to see if I could write something that had that feel, um, but also was quite keyboard heavy as well. And also I wanted to work with a female vocalist because I've worked a lot with male vocalists. Some of the concert albums I've done have had male and female vocalists on it, but I wanted to do an album that was all female vocalist. Um, and so I worked with uh, Hayley Griffiths doing the vocals on it, and she's wonderful. You know, she can, you know, rock scream like the best of them, but then she can sing soprano like the best of them as well. And so yeah. she has a, a beautiful voice. And it, it was just, it was an opportunity to work with people I'd wanted to work with, a violinist, Robert McClung, who's an American violinist who just plays beautiful, you know, just a wonderful player and um obviously troy a lot of people know troy from his work with nightwish and his pipes and whistles and it was just added it just added textures and my guitarist dave mark pierce who i've worked with for years a good old rocker mm. comes in and does some beautiful gilmore type stuff it just it was an opportunity to just do all the things i wanted to do on songs which i hadn't done for a while and yeah it just it's just a different it's just a different toy box in, in the nicest sense it's like you know it's like opening up a new set of toys and going oh great now i've got a violin what can i do with that how can yeah. i make that work with the piano how can i do this these things and it was it was lovely i've thoroughly enjoyed it i think it's out early next year can't, can't wait to see what people think about it hope they no. like it <laughs> well it sounds it sounds fantastic um I mean, just from the way you described it but i guess because of the intricacies and the amount of people involved um, have you thought about is is this going to be a live project or is it a is it is it an album yeah. that's a stand on its own yeah. or, or, or yeah, have you, you got to retweak it to be, go live go out live? I have, yeah. You can see the terrified look on my face. Yeah, I've got we've, we've been asked to do a headline show in April, right? So, um, which is which is great because I've got um, a Scott Hyam on drums who's the old Pendragon drummer, uh, yeah. and so he's joining me. Um, and obviously Haley and Oliver are going to come, but I can't take the full band out because no. it would just be too too expensive and too difficult to do for the rehearsals having eight or nine people on stage so we're doing a one-off show where we'll do some of the music from that record i'm also going to play from a page the rest the yes record that i i wrote with them um so we're going to play those two records and a few other bits and pieces so we're going to do that and see how it goes and then if that goes well and it and we feel like it's gelled properly then i'd like to do a, a little tour with it um but yeah, it's because it's so different because it's my yeah. old rock band, which the other band I take it, which is my, I, we call it the OWB, which is just Oliver Waitman band. That's myself with with Dave again and um, Paul Manzi, the singer who then went on to join the suite. Paul and I have worked together for years, long before he worked with the suite. And when we get together, it's just, it's a good old five piece, yeah, rock keyboard band. driven yeah. rock band. Yeah. And, and so we all, and we all know each other so well, we just go, Right, what did we do 10 years ago? All right, let's do those six and then we'll learn another new piece. But this thing, because it's all new with all new people. Yeah, I'm slightly, slightly nervy. But yeah. I've, I've done enough of these things with dad where dad will phone me up and say, do you want to do a show? And I'll go, okay, what are we doing? And he'll say, I'm doing King Arthur at the O2. Can you come and do that? We've got a two days rehearsal, one day with the choir, one day with the orchestra. I'll send you a load of notes and you go, all right, dad. So because he's sort of grown up, I've grown up with this sort of putting you on the spot approach to things. Yeah, I've suddenly yeah. become that sort of musician as opposed to all my other musician friends that just go, you're a lunatic. Just well, put a band together with five people. 
Well, as you as you've mentioned, you, you, your dad again there with obviously some of the the concept albums he'd been involved with. I noticed on your website that you also wrote the forward for a book on a on a Yes album, Tomato. Yeah. Uh, I'm just yeah. thinking what what because that one is so different to the whole catalogue. It and yeah, I mean, what what would be, what drew you to that one to write a forward for for a book about it? Is that one well, that I'm... you like yourself? I do actually. It's my favourite Yes album, except for the one that I did. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because I was I was first mentioned on I'm Fragile. If you look at the the gatefold sleeve Fragile, there's a booklet on the inside where they yeah, all talk right. about bits and pieces. And at the bottom of Dad's ones, it says PS to one future offspring, and that was me because I was it was seventy one. I was born in yeah. seventy two. Amazing. So everybody sort of assumes Fragile would be my favourite record or Close to the Edge or Going for the One and all these things, which I love. They're terrific, amazing records. But when I was um, when I was about 13 or 14, my dad came back to the UK. My mum and dad split up when I was about five or six. And my dad went over to Switzerland, lived in Switzerland for many years. And so I didn't see him. Uh, and then he came back and I was about, yeah, I was about 12, I think, 10, 11, 12, something like that. And he he married um, Nina, who was his third wife. And they, they bought a house in Camberley and it had a top floor, had three floors to this house. And on the top floor, one of the things he, he, in fact, oddly enough, it's bizarre, but one of the only things he'd kept from the first marriage, which was to my mum, was a snooker table. How he kept hold of a snooker table, <laughs> moving from England to Switzerland and then back again. But this snooker table had survived that I'd remembered from being a kid, a little eight foot, eight foot snooker table. And he had it on the top floor. And um, he put it up on the top floor for us kids to go and play. And he put a stereo up there and and he just put a bunch of records there. And he said, you know, when he wanted some time to go work, he'd just say, I'll go up and play snooker and Mm. play some records or something. And I'd go, I I loved snooker. So I went up there and played snooker. And Tomato was one of the records that was just there. And so I put it on and I loved it because I didn't really have any of the, the yes history. I didn't really, I was young enough to not care about the yes history and the politics and who was in and who was out. I just put it on and thought it was great. And I listened to it over and over and over again. And I think sometimes that's why we as, you know, not just musicians, but music fans, we can often find ourselves loving a record that people that may have grown up with each individual release have actually, actually hate. A bit like um, Deep Purple, my favourite Deep Purple record is Who Do You Think You Are? Yet to most Yes, Deep purple yeah. aficionados. It's the weaker. It's the weakest one out of the Burn Stormbringer. Yeah, yeah Mark. It's it's. But for me, because it was my entry to the band of actually really getting into it, you end up with a soft spot for that record because it's what it was your entry into that world. And Tomato was a bit like that for me. I, I you know I know Close to the Edge is a is a better progressive record, and I know Fragile is probably a more emotive record because of when it came out and all the things it did. But for me, because Tomato was the first one I sort of really sat and listened to, that was my springboard into the other elements of Yes, which I think also made it easier for me getting into 90125 and being able to go backwards into the going for the one era as well. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so to, so when, when I've been interviewed by Kevin Lorraine many times on his, his podcast for, for the Yes projects that I've worked on, you know, he'd always said to me, what's your favorite Yes record? And I, I said to him, I said, it's Tomato. I said, you're going to laugh at me, it's Tomato. And he went, that's my favorite one as well. And I was like, wow. And he said, I'm writing a book. If I write a book, will you do the forward? And I said, yeah. 
Absolutely. And then true to form, a few years later, he said, I've written a book. Are you, you, you still okay to do the forward? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So that, that's, how it, that's how it came about. I think I wonder if it's because I, I totally agree with you. The entry point for any band, whatever album is the one that opens the door, it becomes connected to you. But in the Now Spinning Magazine Facebook group, I would say, which is full of Yes fans, Tomato is probably the album that gets posted the most. And I think it's because I think it's because it's a challenge and and it's not as well known. And I mean, I I play it a lot because it's not as it's different. It stands out, even if it. I mean, it can't, obviously, I think I didn't get into yes until going for the one. Um, I was about eighteen, and then obviously that came afterwards, and it was like, well, that's not what I expected. But over yeah. the years, I go back to that, and it's there's more to explore in it. I guess uh, it's not. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think you summed it up there brilliantly with because it came after going for the one, and I think for a lot of yes fans, obviously having been in the band and, and know the history, you know everybody you had the sort of yes album fragile close to the edge yes songs that whole can it get any bigger and then tales which was a bit divisive i think dad didn't particularly help that with his comments but it was a bit of a divisive record yeah and then relayer with patrick took them into a sort of avant-garde yeah almost almost jazz yeah yeah which sort of pushed some of the the sort of traditional prog fans uh, maybe a little too far as to where they wanted to go. And I think going for the one was seen like a, oh, okay, they've gone through, they've worked through all the chaos and got back to taking Mm. the best bits of aggressive rock and the best bits of songs and putting it together into something that was, you know, quite rightly hailed as a masterpiece. Going for the one is a tremendous record. And so I can see why when the Yes fans have finally got the Yes back that they wanted, then to hear tomato i can imagine that at the time people were like oh come on you know you've just proved you can do it why have you done this thing but um for me approaching it from the different way which yeah. it's one of the advantages i think of of um people when they get into bands later you know if you get into a band after about i mean like, for me it's terrific i get into bands but if i to find a new band now in the 70s that i didn't know about it's it's you know you've got so much to choose from you know you sort of forget that in the day everybody had to wait a year till the next record came out to see what would happen and you'd have to read music press once every week just to see if there was a column of any news about that record now we can get every bit of information about who was eating what sort of sandwiches on what sort of recording session it's there's so much information out there that we can you know we we're almost spoiled for choice if you get into deep purple now there's so much stuff you can choose from. It's terrific. Absolutely. And just to kind of double back as we come to the end of the interview is that this is why box sets like this are so special is that yes, now absolutely. you have an opportunity because again, a lot of this music was, was in the background. Even if yeah. you were a John Wetton fan, a lot of this stuff wasn't, wasn't easy to find. It wasn't played anywhere. You, yeah. Your eyes were somewhere else and what he was doing with Asia. And, of course, through the 90s, rock kind of drifted away underneath the radar. Um, so now you have an opportunity to explore all of this with all the extra the images and the words that kind of bring it, the music to life rather than listening to a, a file somewhere in yeah. on Spotify and think, oh, so that's a John Wetton solo album. You've got having the book in front of you and playing yeah. it. It's almost as if yeah. John is around you the spirit of what he 
was is um, with all the you know holding it in your hands and looking at the book it's a totally different yeah. experience than just p- pressing play on your on your bluetooth speaker yeah absolutely i'm a you know my my son always comes up to me he's trying to play me files and stuff and i've got you know i've got my apple music full of songs but I've got another little office and the whole wall is just CDs. And and if I want to listen to something, I don't go through my Apple music library and scroll and see if I can see something I want to look at. I go and stand in front of a a bunch of CDs on a wall and go, what, what grabs my, grabs my attention. I can can see you feel the same with the background behind you. I do. But it's it's part of it, it, isn't it? The physical nature of music is part of the art. It, I think it gets Absolutely. you closer to the artist. So your yeah. new album, Anamkara, comes out in the new year. Yeah. Uh, and is it going to be on CD and vinyl? Or uh, Yeah, we're hoping so. Yeah, I really want to do it on vinyl. It's um, It's got lovely artwork by a fantastic artist called Anne Sudworth, and it deserves to be bigger than 12 by 12 centimetres. It needs to be on a 12-inch a 12 cover because um, her, uh, her artwork is, is beautiful. So yeah, so it's out in the in the new year. Um, not sure exactly what date it is yet, but um, it was it was supposed to be coming out around now. But if if any record comes out in late November, December, you're just going to get drowned out by Shaking Stevens and Slade. So we'll just <laughs> wait to we'll wait till the new year. Yeah, good good planning, I think. Um, so where, where's the best place people to stay in touch to know when it's coming out? Um, your own website. Uh, yeah, there's the usual. My my website's usually the main place is oliverwaitman.co.uk. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on on Instagram. Um, so I'm always posting on on there. If, so if anybody's interested, just follow me on there, and I'll happily yeah, bore them with texts as when things things are going to come out. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's quite. It, I'm quite looking forward to it, actually. I'm quite interested to see see what people think of it. Um, well, if they like it, that is. If they hate it, then I. Won't be so keen. I think. I think it's well. It sounds. It sounds great on paper, and I think with everything that you've done before, I can, you've taken bits of all the people you play with, and it sounds like a tremendous project. Um, well, it sounds huge. The amount of people you've got playing on it. So, <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> should be good fun. Sounds. It sounds epic. Well, thanks very much, Oliver, for your time today. It's been fantastic to talk to you, and uh, hopefully, I'll catch up with you um, sometime in the new when the album's out, and you've maybe done your first festival gig. <laughs> yeah fantastic yeah we could yeah see if we survive that yeah no absolutely love to talk here. it's been a pleasure all right thanks oliver thanks very much and i'll talk pleasure. to you soon. thank you a huge thank you to my guest oliver wakeman i remember the album anamkara his latest album will be out in the new year and that sounds really exciting so to find out latest news about the release go to oliverwakeman.co.uk and also check out the john wetton box set as well an extraordinary life it really is superb absolutely beautifully put together and um one of the best box sets of 2023 for me um and that will be my rundown at the end of the year most definitely thank you for watching please check out the website at naspinning.co.uk subscribe to the podcast to the youtube channel become a patron or youtube member and you get to see all of our content before general release remember music is the healer and the doctor so take care keep spinning those discs and i shall see you very very soon